This week on PA Books, the contributors to Duty Calls at Home, John Mayetta, Christy Fick, and Stephen Berg. Our guests on PA Books today are John Mayetta. He is a retired Pennsylvania National Guard public relations officer and teacher at Shippensburg University. Christy Fick, archivist and special collections librarian at Chippensburg University. And Stephen Berg, he's professor of history and chair of the history and philosophy department at Chippensburg University. And we're going to be talking about this book, Duty Calls Home, Central Pennsylvania Responds to the Great War, 1914 to 1918. Stephen Berg, we'll start with you. How'd this book come about? Well, each spring I teach a, a course called Research in Local and Regional History at Shippensburg as part of our Applied History graduate program. Um, 2013, I was trying to think about a project for the class, and one of the things that um, I stumbled upon was the fact that there's not a tremendous amount written about Pennsylvania during the First World War. And specifically with the 100th anniversary coming up this year, I thought it might be a good project for the students to focus on as a group and then to be in a position, if things went well, to pull those uh, research projects together into a book to really do a couple of things. One, to fill a pretty significant gap the fact that there wasn't another good source on the topic. But also I figured with the 100th anniversary, there were going to be teachers, community groups, museums, who are probably going to do projects, do exhibits, and having a local resource would really be an asset for people who were going to be dealing with the First World War and wanting to make a connection uh, to their local communities or to the state of Pennsylvania. Now you have a lot of authors for the mm -hmm. book and a lot of editors. How did you pick and, and assign chapters? It was somewhat organ organic. Um, on the first day of class, I announced to the class we were going to be doing um, this particular project and if students wanted to, they could focus on the First World War. We had a few who chose not to. Um, but then we also re read a book, uh, David Kennedy's Over Here, which is sort of the classic work on the World War I home front. And I think a lot of the, the members of the class saw things in that book that inspired them to look at topics then um, having to do uh, with Pennsylvania, and specifically central Pennsylvania. In terms of the editors, the editors were uh, enthusiastic volunteers. When we were done, I said to the class, if there are people who would like to continue working on this now that the, the class is over. You're welcome to. We, we had dinner over at my house and talked about it. And over the course of just, I guess it was a little bit more than a year, um, myself and members of the class uh, did the work of editing it, proofreading it, laying it out, and publishing it. Chrissy, how did you get involved with it? Um, I joined into Steve's class a little bit after the start of the semester and uh, heard about the project, knew we had to pick a topic, and I kind of uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do at first, but after we read David Kennedy's book over here, I sort of zeroed in on the section where he was talking about education uh, during World War I, and I think that we often hear 
about during other wars, sort of the propaganda that goes on uh, on the home front during these engagements. So I was interested in seeing what was going on in the classroom at that time, and I sort of used that as a way to kind of get into see what was going on locally. You're an archivist at the college mm -hmm. and, and a student too? Uh, yes, I'm working on my second master's in the applied history program. I'll be done in December. So this was my first class in the program, and I think a really good introduction to the program. It was a really great seminar, lots of wonderful ideas going on amongst the different students. John, were you in, in the class also? Yes, I was, and I was. I had taken four years to go through the master's program, so this was uh, one of the really most interesting courses I took. And um, of course, I have prior lives, including a, a lot of service with the Pennsylvania National Guard. So when when we had the option to do something on World War One related, I thought, well, I wonder what people thought when the National Guard was called up in, uh, in central Pennsylvania because I know ever since Desert Storm in 1991 we see this great uh, outpouring of public support when the National Guard is mobilized so I just well let me just try it out I went into the uh, newspaper archives uh, at the Carlisle or at the Cumberland County Historical Society and also at the State Library and just mm, what's in the papers you know as the wars and I found just a tremendous amount of material, and so that really was enough for me to really dig into it, looking at both Carlisle and Harrisburg. Well, Stephen, uh, can you set the groundwork for us a little bit? First of all, for people who may not be entirely clear on World War I, when did it happen and who fought against who? Okay. Um, there's really, when we, when we talk about World War I, it's sort of easy to break it into two pieces. Um, 1914, um, June 28, 1914, is the, the critical moment where Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who's the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, is assassinated while visiting Sarajevo. His death sets off a chain of events that pulls two major blocks into conflict. Um, Britain, France, and Russia on one side, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and then the Ottoman Empire on the other side. Italy starts off on one side, flips to the other side in 1915. Um, the United States initially, Woodrow Wilson, um, as this conflict emerges, makes it very explicit that his goal is to keep the United States out of this conflict. He asks Americans to remain neutral in thought as well as action and hopes that the United States can be sort of a, a neutral broker when the war is over. Um, unfortunately, what ends up happening is the United States, um, in part due to German submarine warfare, almost gets drawn into the war in 1915. Uh, um, we end up negotiating what's called the, the Sussex Pledge with the Germans that asks them to stop their attack on neutral ships. Um, but then in 1917, they resume submarine warfare. And then on August 6th, 1917, the United States declares war and um, enters the conflict. And so from August, uh, April 1917 until November 1918, the United States is fully in the conflict and trying to very rapidly build up troops, mobilize supplies, and help the British, French, and Russians um, until the Russians leave the war following the Russian Revolution. And at the same time, what was central Pennsylvania like then during okay. those years? Um, central Pennsylvania was quite rural. Um, it's sort of a mix of rural and uh, small industrial cities. Um, it 
for us, one of the things that was very interesting is that we do get a mix of cities, places like Harrisburg, um, some larger towns, Chambersburg, Carlisle, um, but also rural areas, uh, a heavy concentration of educational institutions. Um, but also one of the things that really made this kind of interesting from the outset was that it does have that German heritage, which especially because Germany was seen as the major uh, opponent during the, the First World War, that one of the things that we keep seeing running through the, the, the story is how does that German heritage, people of German descent, how does this conflict and this wartime uh, environment impact them? Well, any of you can jump in if you have a comment about that. But was was there some uh, support among the German Americans living in Pennsylvania at the time for the U.S. getting in on the side of Germany? Not that I'm aware of. Are you yeah. do to have any more background yeah, I don't, on that? Yeah, I don't think uh, they would have had, had the gumption to do that, <laughs> even if they believed in that. There was, particularly after 1917, the declaration of war, there was a, uh, just an overwhelming amount of... Uh, public support and government-directed propaganda uh, to support the war effort. And really, we see a lot in public discourse, a lot of vilification of, of Germans, German culture, the German language. Um, so I think that would, would have been very risky on the part of any German-Americans to do yeah, that. And I, and I don't think the Germans who were here um, in Pennsylvania tended to have immigrated quite a bit earlier than, say, Germans in Milwaukee or uh, Germans in Chicago. And so I think the, the tie was a little bit weaker. Um, but they still, if, they, if you had a German surname, you were on guard because people would question your loyalty. But I think most of what we saw is that there was a lot of anti-German sentiment, but the Germans in the area, we didn't really see a, a whole lot of pro-German sentiment. Christy, you said in your chapter that there were some colleges in the area that dropped their German language mm -hmm. classes. Um, one of the things I was really interested in looking at with my topic, because so many of the larger universities had gotten rid of their German departments or suspended German for the time being. Um, University of Michigan in particular got just really gave them the ax um, for the time. And I was wondering if that happened here locally. Most institutions in the area did keep their German programs, but Wilson College actually did suspend German for several years towards the end of the war. Um, there was sort of a buildup of anti-German sentiment, as Steve mentioned, in the area. And then that led to sort of a lack of interest among students. And just from a, being a political issue among educators in Pennsylvania. There was a sense that uh, it just would be unpatriotic to continue with German education at the time. So uh, towards the end of the war, um, the president of Wilson College did decide to suspend German for a few years. Yeah, but it was interesting. They actually expanded, I believe, the French, French. program at Wilson mm -hmm. and brought in French, French exchange students. A lot of times yeah. in many of these institutions. As a way of uh, that sort of allied solidarity. Yeah, one of the interesting statistics we came across was that um, after the war, there was a study of German language instruction in the United States. And after the war, it was between 15 and 20 percent of what it had been prior to the war. So most of the German language programs in the country saw a significant decline. Um, one of the things that's interesting, too, is we saw that the German instructors, not only was there less interest by the students in studying German, but the German instructors were highly sought by the government because of their language skills to work on things like uh, 
They were encouraged to go abroad and assist in the teaching of German to military officials who would have need to know the language to get along and uh, work for the war effort, or just in different state capacities. So I think part of Wilson's issue is that they also lost faculty who could support the program. But one of the, the one big exception to this is um, one of our authors looked at the Westtown School, which is a Quaker school in Berks County, um, which was very explicit about not getting caught up in the, the frenzy for the war. And their enrollment in German actually increased during the war, not uh, huge numbers, but in 1916-17, they had 21 students who were taking German. The following year, it went up to 24. So the Quaker, in every way, sort of goes against the, the other trends in the country. They actually offered guidance to students on how to apply for conscientious objector status at West Ham, which you would certainly not have seen at uh, Dickinson or Gettysburg College. If you were traveling around central Pennsylvania in the period of World War I while the U.S. was involved, would, would, could you have told that there was a war on? Did things look different? Was there a general mobilization or industries that were acting differently? I think one of the things that is really um, striking as you delve into this period is that in some ways life could go on as normal, but in other ways the war just permeates all aspects of civil society, of domestic life, of even the way people are operating their households. Um, I think that you would know if you went to a community there would be so many different ways that you would know that there was a war going on. And part of this is um, in 1917 when the United States declares war, at that point there's no immediate threat to American society. And so the federal government is very deliberate in trying to build up public support for the war. There's uh, the Creel Commission, um, which is set up by the federal government explicitly to try to spread propaganda to encourage people to get involved in the war effort. And so in many, many ways, very basic aspects of life are changed trying to get people involved in the war effort. One of the ones that I think is probably most um, ubiquitous is food that food becomes very, very important symbolically. Uh, Woodrow Wilson comes out and says that conserving food and trying to produce more food is a way Americans can show their patriotism. And so just about every public cafeteria, school cafeteria, uh, family starts eating differently. Um, wheatless and meatless days, smaller portions, more fish, and that's one way that you show your support for the war effort. How did that have a practical effect on the war effort? <laughs> well, that's a, uh, a debatable question, which we didn't look into. We took the, uh, the historical record at face value. But I, I think it's more an issue of uh, giving people a feeling of being involved and supporting. I mean, we see it today when, when soldiers deploy overseas, families will send them care packages and there'll be other sorts of community drives to help them. And having been in a war zone myself, I'm not 
you know, frankly, I could get everything I needed at the PX. But uh, again, it's an idea, it's a gesture of solidarity that allows people to feel they're part of the effort, which is good. I mean, it's good mm -hmm. military strategy, Although, political strategy. I mean, there, there were a couple of things. Um, one was there were certain parts of Europe, Belgium, for example, that was just devastated by the war. And so one of the big efforts that starts right from 1914 is trying to uh, get food to send to Belgium as part of Belgian relief. And there are a couple of moments during the war when Britain, uh, Belgium, are running very, very low on food. And so in the United States, trying to get food to Britain, getting food to the continent, actually does cause a little pressure and some inflation on the, the American food supply. Yeah. So the idea that we're going to conserve food so that there's more for our allies, more for relief, um, there was a certain practical part, especially in terms of the fear of inflation. Um, 1917 prices shoot way up. There's actually food riots. There's a, a very famous one in New York City um, where Jewish Russian women, the price of cabbage shot up almost 2,000 percent and there were riots in the streets. So the idea of trying to be conscientious about the food supply, conserve food, was really seen as a way to keep the prices down, but also, very much as John has said, to get people involved in a sense of being part of the war effort. And the Victory Gardens were part of that? The, yeah, the war guard, they called them war gardens during the, the war. After the war, they wanted people to keep it up. Um, so they were called Victory Gardens after the war, but war gardens, um, canning, um, was a big, there were all kinds of efforts. Well, they weren't called victory gardens during the war? They, yeah, that was, they till more they, often, were, till they until had the war was over, yeah. More often they were called war gardens. Um, but there were other things, there was like, for example, um, the, the Food Administration created this thing that they called um, Hoover's Food Army, which was trying to enlist housewives to restructure the way they were running their homes to be more patriotic, conserve food. This is Herbert Hoover? Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover um, becomes one of the great heroes of the First World War because of his skillful administration of food policy during the war. It's, it's one of the, the, when we think of Herbert Hoover, we often think, you know, the Great Depression. But the reason why he became such a, a national political celebrity was because of his incredible public service during the First World War. Um, so yeah, Herbert Hoover, his food army was seeking to enlist housewives to join the food army. Um, in Cumberland County, the goal was to enlist 15,000 housewives in the food army. And what they would do is when mothers were coming in to enroll their kids for school, they'd jump on them, give them brochures, have them sign a pledge that they would conserve food in their homes. And then this just, you know, whether you used sugar or not, whether you used eggs or not, whether you allowed your family to eat wheat, um, all of these things became ways that you were both supporting the effort, war effort, and demonstrating your patriotism. Well, Christy, if you were walking around co the college campuses of Central Pennsylvania at the time, what would you have seen? What would have looked different because of the war? Um, particularly at Dickinson College and at Gettysburg College, they um, had a lot of military drills that were occurring at the time. There was a group called the Students um, Army Training Corps, uh, which was formed on different campuses, and they were basically training uh, young college men to go abroad and be officers. Um, so they'd sort of get a head start on their military training uh, while they were at school, doing their 
schooling. Is um, it similar to ROTC now? Similar, slightly different. Um, it was authorized by the War Department. It was sort of a special uh, wartime situation, and it was built off of a previously existing program that they had on campuses. Now they could it could feed into ROTC, sure. which did mm -hmm. date from World War One. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we used a lot of uh, specific classes that were geared towards these students. They were. Um, practicing out in the field for several hours a day. They had to report to a commanding officer on campus. Uh, they referred to some of their dorms as barracks. So I think just in terms of the campus culture, it definitely changed the vibe at certain places. Yeah, I think we found that Dickinson College in particular, mm -hmm. um, they thoroughly embraced the war effort. Very patriotic. Oh, um, Berber, I, mm -hmm. I came across mm -hmm. a, uh, a fire-breathing editorial in the Dickinsonian, the Carlisle, the student uh, magazine from one of the professors. Uh, just now is the time for all young Dickinson men to march off and answer the call of war and defend their country. And he, he was quite a character because I saw elsewhere in the coverage of the Carlisle Sentence, Sentinel uh, during the wartime someone, a burglar had broken into his home while he was in the house and he pulled out a gun from under his bed and took some pot shots at this burglar. So he was quite, uh, uh, you know, quite aggressive in his personal life too, but a very colorful character. And you wouldn't expect to see that level of um, uh, necessarily that fervent patriotic feeling on a college campus. Now, Shippensburg was being a teacher's college, a normal school at the time. The Cumberland Valley Normal Cumberland School. Cumberland Valley Normal School was an exception, um, and you can, you can explain what was going on um, there. Yeah, essentially the president of uh, Cumberland Valley State Normal School at the time, Ezra Lehman, he said it would be um, remiss of us to allow us to have this sort of military installation on our campus. Our job is to educate our students to become teachers. We're training teachers for the future of our um, our. Uh, cities and our, our county. So their job is really focused on sort of the local situation. They would say, what would it do to our children, to our, our future, if we let all of our future teachers um, go off? So they felt that that would be a poor decision. Um, was that a controversial decision? Uh, I can't really tell if it was. It was definitely in the minority, I think. Uh, it was definitely going against the flow of what a lot of other institutions were doing yeah, on the it, national level. The, the SATC, the mm -hmm. Student, um, Student Army Training Corps program, was set up in August of 1918. Mm -hmm. So it's fairly late in mm -hmm. terms of American participation. And the war, I think, from the fall of 1918, although it's not completely over yet, I think the, the really fervent pro-war sentiments were probably a little bit earlier. And so when his decision, he's really trying to argue about whether or not that program should be run on the Cumberland Valley State Normal School campus. And I think at that particular moment, he, he went to Washington, mm -hmm. negotiated with the War Department, got permission, and I think probably the calculus was at that point those students were not going to make a huge impact in terms of the war. So I think it was less controversial a bit because of the timing. But Were the SATC programs pretty much universal in college campuses at the time? Very they wide. were very yeah. widely spread, um, and it was definitely regulated from the top down. They had issues from the War Department about what they were supposed to teach, how they were supposed to sort of run their day, and they're really they were definitely treated, I think, as as soldiers in a way more so than students. And what's interesting is this is one of my favorite World War One um, legacies, is that the the concern in 1914 
was that if the United States would get into the war, that Americans were just not physically fit enough to be able to mobilize uh, a really competent army. And so one of the debates that starts very, very early is whether there should be training programs for all students in school to get them ready to potentially be soldiers. Um, and there are those who think that it needs to be military drill. Um, there are others who argue that that is a militarization of the public schools. And so the compromise is to introduce phys ed. And so for us today, phys ed is still this legacy of the First World War, not quite military training, but hopefully getting the kids fit enough that if we do go to war, they'll be able to be competent soldiers. Now, one of the big exceptions we found is we looked at, we had one of our authors who looked at Mercersburg Academy, which of course is a, a private academy. And at Mercersburg, um, the students were very, very supportive of the idea of military training, um, so much so that it was optional, but the first year they did it, they had 200 students sign up for it, and so the second year they made it mandatory, and what the, the school administration said was it wasn't that they necessarily wanted to be militarizing the student body, but their view was this was giving their students additional training above and beyond their regular coursework, that would give them new opportunities if they wanted to pursue the military after they were done at Mercersburg. Did many students leave college to join the Army? Um, they did. They left to join the service, but there were also a lot of students leaving campus to participate in war work in other ways. So you would see, especially in this area, students going to work on farms. So they'd be working towards the production of food goods, or you'd see them going to work in industry or into shipyards, going out to Philadelphia. Um, so they would have to get sort of a special leave arrangement that they would work out with their faculty members. Um, you know, they'd say, I'm in good standing, I've caught up on my, all my coursework, and they would go out um, to participate in their communities and support the war in that way if they weren't going abroad. Or you'd have them form Red Cross groups on campus, and then they'd be making these kits that they would send to soldiers abroad. So there was a lot of involvement on campuses in different ways. Was there much war opposition on college campuses? Not that I was able to find in the student newspapers. There were certainly students who were, you know, fell on both sides of the fence. Um, but I didn't notice any big rallies or protests or any sort of um, large public markers of uh, sort of opposition. Yeah, and I think it's again from 1914 to 1917, the the question tends to be, you know, should the U.S. be involved in the war? Um, which side is right? Is it the British or the Germans who are more on the right in terms of the war? Um, are the British or especially the Germans perpetrating atrocities against civilians, whether it's in Belgium or through the submarine warfare? Um, there's a lot more open discussion from 1914 to 1917. Um, one of our chapters actually looks at newspaper coverage. Um, and one of the things is I think people really were trying to be more balanced, trying to look at both sides. The, the strong opposition to war, um, Woodrow Wilson, when he runs for re-election in 1916, um, there's the slogan, he kept us out of war. People are focusing less on the European war, and it's more he kept us out of war with Mexico, which is actually where troops get involved 
before we get in into Europe. And I want to ask you about that, John. In your in your chapter, you write about the uh, Pennsylvania National Guard troops were guarding the Mexican border against incursions by Pancho Villa. Yeah, the National Guard actually had two rehearsals, and not just Pennsylvania, but the National Guard generally had two rehearsals for World War One back to back. In uh, June of 1916, uh, guard units, I think about 100,000 guardsmen nationwide were called up to go to the border, the Texas border with Mexico, to block uh, incursions by Pancho Villa. He had conducted a couple of raids into New Mexico, killed a few Americans, really as more of a way just to show his revolutionary uh, bona fides. So, so he had withdrawn to Mexico, so the guard is sent on the border as a blocking force, and regular army cavalry then are sent into Mexico, uh, uh, somewhat quasi-legally, to pursue Pancho Villa. It was called a punitive expedition to punish, with, to punish with, Pancho Villa. Is that with General Pershing? It was, yes. General Pershing's claim to fame. So these guard troops are on the border and mostly fighting the, uh, the tumbleweeds and uh, getting in trouble with the women of ill repute and maybe too much gambling and uh, it, it really not very important from a strategic standpoint but it did give the uh, the guard a chance to experience kind of a large-scale mobilization address some logistic issues and just get used to working in a very austere environment so the guard comes home in about January of 1917 and, and they begin being released from active service and all of a sudden comes the declaration of war in April and so before many of these guardsmen are released from service they're, they're retained on service and perform a very interesting early homeland security mission. From April until June of 1917, they're sent out, again, you know, thousands in Pennsylvania to guard bridges, railroads, industrial infrastructure uh, against the threat of German sabotage, which, which there was a credible threat. Uh, there were some, of course, documented cases of German attacks. And when you were asking earlier about how was life different in this period, even before the U.S. Um, was involved in the war in force, you have guardsmen guarding these facilities, and it could be dangerous. I found, just looking at two newspapers, in the course of a three-month span, 13 incidents of civilians, innocent civilians being shot, some of them killed, uh, by National Guard sentries, who sees a shadow in the dark, maybe somebody's throwing stones at them. Actually, the Rockville Bridge, somebody was firing on these National Guard sentries and they, they chased him into Marysville, uh, unsuccessful in catching him. But what's really interesting, and it speaks to this idea of uh, how the entire country rallies around the war effort, I found editorials after these incidents of uh, civilians being killed uh, were reported Newspaper editorials would say, well, it serves you right. Don't you know there's a war on? You shouldn't be hanging around doing suspicious things at bridges. And besides, it's good marksmanship training. You know, you can't expect these, uh, these uh, green soldiers to exert uh, or exercise a great deal of discipline. You know, they're frightened. They're new on the job. So it's expected they'll take a, a few pot shots. So just, you know, you are warned. Very interesting. Very did, interesting. You, did you find evidence of actual sabotage that happened in, during that time period? Uh, not in the sources I was looking at, but again, I do mention that one incident at the Rockville Bridge where soldiers were fired upon, and there were other occasions where uh, soldiers maybe felt threatened. Somebody was coming at them in the dark. They didn't know who they were. Now, why would someone have joined the National Guard as opposed to the regular army at a time like that during the early 20th century? Well, the National Guard has always been sort of the home homeland force, the citizen-soldier force, and 
in the late 19th century, the National Guard was more of a, almost a social organization, kind of a men's club, um, do manly things together in the armory and, and do some marksmanship and so on. But we see really from the Spanish-American War onward the, an increasing pre- professionalization of the National Guard under uh, regular Army oversight, uh, War Department oversight, to make it a more credible, a more professional force. And that process is underway uh, as, as the war kicks in. And so you have soldiers who are, who are really interested and in, in wanted to be patriotic uh, uh, members of the military. So they've sort of shed a lot of that social, that recreational flavor. And they're really uh, committed to their military responsibilities. And they look forward to going off to war. When they were called up and sent overseas, did, did they just get absorbed into the regular army and, and be uh, indistinguishable yes, they, from the rest yes, of the army? Yes, they did, and, and we confirmed that. Uh, I confirmed that in my research. Up until uh, July, well, July is when the mobilizations took place nationwide. The National Guard is brought into active service, and it's done by drafting all of them. Uh, there were some constitutional issues at the time as to whether the president could call the National Guard into overseas service. So they all were just drafted. Into the National Guard? Into into the regular army. Into the regular army. And so then they would go through about a month's training or preparation at their home armories, home communities. And uh, August, September, they start shipping them out to hastily constructed army training camps in the South. And then in October of 1917, uh, the National Guard is totally reorganized. And all of the old units are dissolved, regiments are split, some are disbanded, some become something else, uh, others form new regular army divisions. So by the end of 1917, the idea of a Pennsylvania National Guard identity within the military is gone. And that's when we see, in my research, uh, a tapering off, considerable tapering off of public interest in what the guardsmen are doing because there is no there is no more hometown unit. They've, you know, they've been scattered to the winds and then begin shipping overseas. Were, were they kept together in, in the First World War, all the people from the same towns? No, same not areas? at all. Again, this starting from October of 1917, all the units were broken up, soldiers mm-hmm. reassigned, and just the normal rotation of troops in and out. By the time the Pennsylvania Division, uh, which became the 28th Division, by the time the 28th Division arrives in the European Theater in May of 1918, it's no longer a unit of Pennsylvanians. It simply, um, you know, as a unit carries lineages of Pennsylvania units. But um, you write in the book about a couple of training camps in this part of the state, uh, Gettysburg, and and you had a camp on City Island in Harrisburg. Yeah, that that was very interesting. I had no idea, and uh, the photographs, unfortunately, are on microfilm, so they weren't that high quality. But yeah, the uh, about eight hundred National Guardsmen from Harrisburg. Uh, after they were called up in July of 1917, they, they went to what is now City Island and set up a, an encampment to prepare for the war. And quite a community uh, operation. Families were encouraged to come over on the island for picnics. They had regimental band concerts that people could attend. The, uh, the guardsmen were called out. There was a, a train passing through Harrisburg with a uh, convicted murderer on it, and he escapes from the train. And so the National Guard joins in this manhunt. 
and uh, it's quite an interesting angle of Pennsylvania history, or local history that was quite new to me. I had no idea. And then the, the other one, of course, which is probably even more well known, are the, the training camps in Gettysburg. Um, there's a first one that doesn't have a specific name. So it's the training camp at Gettysburg. Um, the second one is Camp Colt, which is probably the more famous because the, the commanding officer there is uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And it's actually one of the first training camps for use of uh, tanks during the First World War. So that was a, a really interesting study. Our colleague Pete Mealy um, delved into both how that camp came to be, but also um, what does it mean to suddenly have a little town like Gettysburg with hundreds and hundreds of... A large eight, influx of young males. Young males yes, with yeah. a lot of time on their hands. What yeah. was the effect? <laughs> Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that one of the things that the, the Army looked at this bringing together of young men, this is, we have to remember, this is the progressive era. So there's still a lot of... Uh, faith in social reform. There's a lot of belief in sociology and social engineering. And so there's a whole series of reformers who look at this as an opportunity to try to take this group of young men and create, uh, try their different experiments to make society work well. Um, so they put a lot of restrictions on them, on um, that they're not allowed to be drinking, they're not supposed to be fraternizing, um, and then encouraging the community to try to create opportunities, churches and recreational opportunities. And um, they have some success. Mixed success. Uh, of course, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was successful in posting military guards at the entrances to taverns to keep uh, to discourage troops from entering. But what we found, because our colleague Pete looked at the Gettysburg newspapers and I was looking at Carlisle newspapers, other folks were looking at different uh, papers in the area, we would find the soldiers who were um, uh, forced to toe the line in Gettysburg because of all the military police, they would wander off into other communities. So we see reports of of, uh, of, of riots and uh, disturbances in other cities, particularly the most interesting one was in Carlisle where the police raided one of the body houses in Carlisle and found among the other patrons uh, four soldiers who were AWOL from Gettysburg and they were all sitting around enjoying a chicken and waffle dinner. Uh, which I guess is what the madam would do to encourage uh, business <laughs> Sounds traffic. Sounds wholesome. <laughs> Sounds very wholesome. So, uh, yeah, so we see incidents of this cropping up in the region. How big mm. were these camps? I think I saw a figure of about 10,000 at uh, Gettysburg. But, I don't know. but they weren't year-round. No, uh, no, no, no. Well, you write in the book that uh, when winter came, they were shipped to the south? Yeah, the first one, the first one, dissolved in the fall, and then there was a debate about whether it would be reinstated, and then Camp Colt began in the spring of 1918, and then November of 1918, the war is over. So um, it's a fairly short duration for, for two camps in Gettysburg. Christy, you read about the Carlisle Indian School, which was going on at the time. Can you just fill us in on what that was and what was happening there during sure. these years? Um, our classmate Mary Lee Shade did the chapter on um, the Carlisle Indian School, which was um, a Indian boarding school set up by the federal government uh, located in Carlisle. It actually dissolved at the end of the war, but had been um, a local institution for quite a while before then. Um, so uh, what would happen is they would 
bring Native American children uh, from out west and reservations, bring them to the boarding school to educate them, and the whole idea behind uh, the institution would be to assimilate um, these children into American uh, ways of life. Um, so obviously great debate over uh, the merits of that, whether or not that is uh, good or bad. Um, so I think that the idea, that was the idea behind the system, and there were many um, of these students who, they were coming of age, they were even sometimes a little bit older than 18, so they could have been even older than high school level. Uh, so they would go off to war or go off to be nurses and serving um, in some of the same ways as you would have other college students serving um, the country during that time. So they did volunteer from the... Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did school. a lot of Red Cross work, a lot of work in the community um, with doing cooking demonstrations about how to... Uh, being meatless and wheatless on certain days and what sorts of ingredients you could use to substitute um, in your bread or cookies to make them more uh, in line with uh, the patriotic food conservation efforts. There's a mention in the book about the band, and I don't know if this was you, the part that you wrote that, about the band at Carlisle, and it initially when the students brought their instruments from home, they were traditional Native American instruments. Part of... Um, the Carlisle Indian School's efforts to assimilate these children was to uh, get rid of any um, native sort of products or and trappings that they had with them. So um, they could no longer speak their native language. They couldn't keep their hairstyles the same. They had to cut their hair. They gave them um, the same clothes you would see um, white children wearing. So they would also then remove any um, instruments over time that they, any other. Um, home goods that they would have brought with them that would have been markers of um, Native societies. Was, was World War I uh, part of the reason that the Carlisle Indian School closed, or was it just coincidental? There, uh, it was part of the reason. There was mismanagement over time uh, that sort of led up to this era, and uh, sort of some financial, I think, difficulties that they had as well. Um, however, their uh, superintendent or director did leave around that time, and then I think there was sort of a lack of uh, firm leadership. Uh, that also caused some issues. And it proved to be a good place to set up a uh, hospital Yes. After uh, immediately after mm -hmm. the end of the war. Well, what happened to the National Guard soldiers when the war ended, who, the ones who were in the Guard when the war started and then went over to Europe? Well, they would have been uh, demobilized and just returned to their home communities. Did they go back into the Guard, or were, was there a tour up? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. They had that option, but again, as I say, they had been drafted into the regular army. So many of them, the reasons that applied before the war would have continued to apply after the war. You know, it's a chance to, um, uh, to do some part-time patriotic service in the communities. It's interesting, the uh, armory in the World War I era armory is still standing in Carlisle. And uh, so clearly soldiers would have come back and reformed uh, in that building. Now, at the start of this program, I introduced you as retired Pennsylvania National Guard public relations officer. Mm -hmm. you, how long were you in the Guard? I was in uh, between the Guard and Reserve 38 years. How much of that time was full-time? Starting in about 2002, I started volunteering for overseas active duty assignments. I'd pretty much put my civilian career uh, in hiatus and began going overseas. So for most of those years, you worked I was a part-time citizen soldier, worked in public relations most of that time in Harrisburg and other places. Where did you go overseas? I was in the Balkans, Bosnia, Kosovo. I was in Germany for a year during the World War II 60th anniversary commemorations. I served for two years on a wounded warrior mission down at Andrews Air Force Base and uh, spent the last year in Iraq. Is it 
is it different being a National Guard soldier being sent to Iraq or sent to Bosnia than than regular army? No, once you get there, you you become part of the army in the sense that I mean, you still nowadays, of course, you still retain your identity as a member of a National Guard unit, and we've had up to brigade size units in Pennsylvania deploy to Iraq. Uh, but you you are part of the army effort. Uh, the difference is then when you return home, and this is what makes the National Guard distinctive from the regular forces, is uh, guard units are located in communities all over America. So they are much more, during peacetime, they are much more representative of hometown America, hometown American values, rather than the active duty military, which tends to be on just a few uh, isolated military posts. Were you called in for much of that flood? Flood duty or uh, natural disasters? Uh, well, I was down at Katrina for a couple of months. So, what was that like? Was it in New Orleans. In New Orleans, yes, that was. Um, we'd gotten there about two weeks after the uh, hurricane hit, so uh, we were engaged in security operations, trying to rebuild some local infrastructure, just supporting those efforts. Christy, you are a librarian at Shippensburg. What is different in the 21st century about being a librarian than would have in the 20th century? Uh, certainly, I think technology, which everyone can uh, can relate to in their daily lives. Um, with uh, so much being online now, uh, you see a lot um, less use of certainly print reference works, as you would have seen in the early 20th century. Students doing research 50 years ago would have had a much different process than they do today, certainly in the way that they, um, the tools at their at their fingertips and sort of the way that they go about utilizing those services, much different. Do you have fewer books now? Um, we do. We Our print collection is still there and growing. We still acquire what's necessary for our students and faculty to do their work. Um, we're also growing our ebook collection and certainly our um, electronic journal collection is very strong. Why did you get into that field? Uh, I was always very interested in the research process. I just um, loved the process of discovery and what could you find out by looking at what other people had done and what they hadn't done. Uh, being a studying history and anthropology in undergrad, just really loved kind of the stories that were out there and primary sources waiting for me. And Stephen Berg, you are Dr. Berg. Yes. Uh, what do you teach? Uh, I teach um, United States history, world history, but my specialty is what's called public history, um, which is uh, a fairly new field in history, which is trying to get historians more engaged in working with the public, serving in public institutions, um, helping to public audiences to better understand what historians do and what's happened in the past. Now, you're the chairman of the Department of History and Philosophy? That's correct. Is that two different departments, or is it's it one under combined one depa umbrella? department. We have um, uh, 14 and a half <laughs> historians and two philosophers. Why did they combine those two under one umbrella? Is that unusual? Uh, what happened, it's a, a historical phenomena. It used to be that there was a Department of Social Studies. When that department broke up, they put history, geography, political science into separate departments, and there were only a handful of philosophers. So not quite enough for their own department, so they joined them together with the historians. Do you have a favorite aspect of history? Um, I have to tell you that my I, I love history in all of its different forms. I um, recently have really delved deeply into local history and regional history. I love 
being able to take national or global events and see how they play out at the local level because I think that it's, it's just fascinating to see the nuances of how humans in different societies um, work through the issues that come with global events. Have you put books together before? Yeah, this is, um, I've done a few different books. Um, we recently I worked with a, um, one of my students who had done a book on the um, Civil War, African-American Civil War veterans of Franklin County. Um, I had done a book on the, the black history of Shippensburg. And my, my very first book was on editing historical documents. So is that something that ordinary people would read? Um, some do. You'd be surprised. It's, uh, um, it was mostly meant for people who, whether they're at a historical society, at a college, who are trying to publish original documents. And it's, it's funny. It's probably one of the things that I've written that the most people have read, because people find it very useful. You have a chapter that you wrote in this uh, book, book, or the afterward, uh, on mm -hmm. uh, William Ashwell. How did you find out about him, and what was significant about him? Okay. Um, I, my house backs up against the, the Spring Hill Cemetery in Shippensburg, and so it's one of those places that I, I like to take walks. Um, in the Spring Hill Cemetery is a green where each Memorial Day, the, the community stops there at the cemetery to have their Memorial Day observance. And there in the cemetery is a small, um, it's only a couple feet high, um, a little monument to William Ashwell. And I just wanted to, to read you what it says. It says, died in France January 10th, 1918, in his 22nd year, a memorial by the citizens to the first soldier of Shippensburg to give his life for world's peace. And for me, I was very intrigued by William Ashwell because he was the first Shippensburg citizen to die, but also the fact that the community saw his death as something that was going to bring about world peace. And knowing the history of the 20th century, that seemed you know, sort of both interesting and tragic at the same time. And so as I dug into his history, one of the things that I discovered was it was very interesting because he died and was originally buried in France, um, like many servicemen who died uh, during the First World War. Um, and the community didn't think he was coming back, so they uh, erected that monument in his honor. But what happened with a lot of US servicemen was they were exhumed and brought back home after the end of the war. So in 1921, his body came back to Shippensburg. There was a, a community uh, observance. They marched his body up to the cemetery, buried him. But then, for almost 50 years, that original monument they had put up to him was somewhat lost. It was put in a very poor location. And it was on the 50th anniversary that that monument was rediscovered and moved to a more public location and rededicated in honor of all of the veterans from Shippensburg who had died during the nation's wars. For me, I thought that was really moving and important because now we're at the 100th anniversary of the First World War. And for me, the question was, what are we going to do now that it's the 100th anniversary of the war to mark this event, to commemorate, to remember, and for me, that's a lot of what this book represents, is an effort to try to look back on that time, understand that time, 
and remember the people, both the soldiers, but especially the people here in central Pennsylvania, the citizens, how that global event transformed their lives. And you write in here that uh, at the 1965 dedication, or, or ceremony, mm -hmm. the crowd gathered on Memorial Green. Uh, he became one of a long line of men who gave their lives for freedom rather than a soldier who died tragically for the cause of world peace. So it, the focus changed from dying for peace to dying for freedom. Yes, and I think that, that it is one of the things that's really interesting about um, how we remember things. Because I think at the time when you think in 1918, Shippensburg was trying to erect this monument. They were really trying to figure out how do we make sense of this horrible tragedy of this 22-year-old, one of our friends and neighbors, who's gone off to France and died of spinal meningitis before he ever got into combat. And I think for them, that issue of world peace, the hope of world peace in the midst of war, was something that really was powerful to them. I think. You know, 50 years ago, as the community was again at this spot, thinking about this person and this event and this monument, they were really trying to say, how do we make this meaningful to us today? And I think William Ashwell had less of a personal connection to them, but I think they really wanted to make this more universal about all of the veterans who were there being honored on Memorial Day. Can you describe how the, the general public and the nation viewed World War I as it was going on versus how it viewed World War II and then Vietnam and then Afghanistan and subsequent wars? Um, I think the First World War, while it was going on, people were convinced that it was important. When it was over, I think there was a, a terrible sense of buyer's remorse. And especially when we get to the Great Depression, People, the, the popular opinion is strongly that this was a mistake. I want to read that. You, you write that a Gallup poll from 1937 found that fully 70% of the people interviewed thought American intervention in the Great War had been a mistake. Mm -hmm. Which is both significant in retrospect, you know, looking back on what had happened, but also right on the, the cusp of the beginning of the Second World War. And I think that's one of the things that's, you know, for us, the, the First World War defined how Americans, as the Second World War was about to happen, how they were interpreting events in the world. They didn't want to do that again, even though the events and the circumstances were, were very different. I think, you know, for us, looking back on the First World War, one of the really interesting questions for us today is what does this war mean? Is this a war where U.S. intervention turned out to be a good thing, that it brought this war to an end, provided an opportunity? Was it you know, something that was tragic, a waste of human life? Um, and I think for us, it's a great opportunity to really delve into this because it is something of a forgotten event, but I think what our, our study shows is it was something that transformed life in a lot of ways, transformed schools, communities, people who went into service. It transformed food, um, daily life, civic life. And if we're going to really think about what does this impact or what does this event mean, I think there's a lot that we can take from it, especially today as a nation that's still at war and use this as an opportunity to really reflect on what that means. Christy, what did you learn by going through this whole process, getting involved in this project? 
Um, it was just so interesting to see sort of how quickly things came and went because when we're looking at um, World War One in America, really, it's spring of 1917 to fall of 1918, so not quite even 18 months, not quite a year and a half. Um, so just looking at it from the education perspective, you have things coming and going on campus so rapidly, they're not even making it into course catalogs. Uh, so really, the documentation of these events is so uh, fluid and things sort of come and go. It's very ephemeral. Um, and I think just the ways that people were able to institute change sort of on the fly, and then uh, as soon as it was over, well, let's wrap that up, and uh, back to normal now. The campuses went back to normal yeah, right away? Yeah, pretty quickly, pretty quickly. As soon as things ended, um, a lot of the faculties uh, got together, had their meetings, and said, okay, well, uh, it's you know the fall. As soon as we're done with the semester, let's just move on. We'll give students credit so that they don't fall behind, and we'll try to keep things on track. And I think it was, yeah, really just about getting, getting back to normalcy for a lot of people. John, what did you learn for this whole process? What I learned is that World War I, particularly during that mobilization period as the soldiers were getting ready to go off to war and went off to war, how important the support of the American people is. And it's a lesson we've learned and unlearned in history. And I, I drew a comparison in my book between uh, the aftermath of the Vietnam War when Creighton Abrams, who was the chief of staff of the Army, said, never again will, will America go to war without involving the National Guard and the Reserve, because when you, when you do that, it serves to check um, rash political actions, because you know you have to have not just uh, the, the enclaved military forces, the regular Army behind you, you have to have you know, hundreds of communities across America have to buy into this, and then once you do start the war, then they have an emotional attachment to those who are fighting the war. And so it proved to be, uh, you know, a, a, an echo from World War One that we see now ever since Desert Storm, when, as the National Guard units are called up, tremendous outpouring of public support, and that continues uh, as long as they're deployed and until they return safely home. And Professor Berg, you were the expert to start out with, and you pulled this project together. Is this going to be a template for future books that you might uh, produce out of Shippensburg University? I hope so. Um, I think that one of the things that has really been something we've been trying to emphasize within our program, it's the graduate program is called the Applied History Program, is that especially when you have a class like a research methods class like the one we had in the spring of 2013, you have such potential, such energy, such opportunity to do original research. And if you're going to do original research, my hope would be that you can share it with people because I think these stories are interesting stories, they're meaningful stories, and I think whether it's a book or whether it's articles or whether it's public presentations, documentary films, I think that the public really enjoys history and I think there's a lot of history that it would be good for the public to know more about. Well, we are out of time. Our guests for this hour have been Stephen Berg. He is the professor of history and chair of the history and philosophy department at Shippensburg University. Christy Fick, archivist and special collections librarian at Shippensburg University. And John Mayetta, retired Pennsylvania National Guard public relations officer and now teacher at Shippensburg. And they are the authors of this book. They are among the authors of this book, Duty Calls at Home, Central Pennsylvania Responds to the Great War, 1914 to 1918. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's Thank been you. a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. 
Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.